The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Carol Pasternak lives by the motto, it's gotta be fun. That is what she brings to this episode. Have you ever thought about having a caterpillar as a pet? Well, you'll want to after listening to her in this episode. Egg hunts aren't just from the Easter Bunny anymore. Carol talks about her thrill and experiences searching for eggs laid by butterflies and tracking down the caterpillar. You'll find out how exciting it is to watch a caterpillar transform from a chrysalis into a butterfly. Also, what you can do to help overcome the challenges facing the monarch butterfly population. What is good for the monarch is good for nature and for us. Carol Pasternak is an author, teacher, photographer, and sought-after speaker who has been raising monarch butterflies with her families for 40 years. In her free time, she can be found in ditches, meadows, and forests, scouring every crevice for signs of wildlife. Her book, How to Raise Monarch Butterflies, A Step-by-Step Guide for Kids, has sold over 60,000 copies and received international acclaim. Her latest book, Five Butterflies, inspires young people to pause their devices and revel in the natural world outside their door. This is episode 128, The Monarch Crusader, with Carol Pasternak. Carol, it's monarch butterfly tagging season in Toronto. How does that make you feel? I'm very excited about tagging season. I have mixed feelings, though, uh, because this is the first year I'm not tagging. Uh, I've tagged for about 10 years, and I've had the excitement of one of the monarchs that I tagged flew 4,000 kilometers to Mexico, and someone found that tag. So that was very exciting. But around southern Ontario, where I live, I've been to two tagging events in the last week, and wow, we teach people what the meaning of the tag is. They get to tag one, release one, and I get my megaphone out and tell the whole story. In addition to that, I tell them the spiritual aspect of the monarchs, and they are just fascinated by all things associated with monarch tagging and monarchs going to Mexico. Well, I guess that event was at the Clarkston Family Farm Butterfly Festival. Was that one of the events you're talking about? That's one of the events. 1,250 people came to that event. We monarch enthusiasts are making a lot of noise that we can get 1,250 people to come out to an event, and it had activities. Everyone was happy. Well, tell us a little more about it. There was an opportunity to adopt a caterpillar. One monarch enthusiast raised close to a thousand caterpillars for this event. That way we had enough adult monarch butterflies for people to have a personal one-on-one experience with tagging and releasing. But the other part of it is, is that there were 500 caterpillars. 
why would one want to raise a caterpillar and why would families want to give their children that experience? Where do they even get a caterpillar if they want to do that? It's hard to do, but this event had them and that was a big draw. 500 families walked home with caterpillars and instructions and milkweed and containers and explanations. So here's the scoop. You've got a small caterpillar if you were experienced and the organizers trusted you to take care of it for 10 days until it would make its chrysalis. But if you had never done it before, you got a big caterpillar that was going to make its chrysalis in just a couple of days. So you couldn't make a mistake. You get to watch the best part of the metamorphosis up close on your kitchen table in a clear plastic container. It finishes eating, then it crawls up to the top, hangs upside down in a J-shape. Wow, how can it hang upside down in a J-shape? First, it has to make a silk pad with its mouth, and it moves its mouth back and forth a thousand times, and you're watching it and watching it. Whoa, the energy of this caterpillar. Then it uses its rear claspers to attach itself and hang upside down. Okay, so now what's happening? What's happening? How long is it going to take? How long is it going to, to, to hang there? What's it doing? Well, we've already explained to them, and you can read it in my book, that what they're doing is making a chrysalis on the inside. Everyone thinks it's going to spin something. It's not going to spin something. It's making a chrysalis on the inside. Then they get to see the best part. The head splits open splits its head open, and out pops this chrysalis it's been making. And then it whirls around and twirls around until it makes a gorgeous chrysalis that looks like a jeweler has spent 20 hours making it. That's exciting. You put the craving on me to go find a caterpillar and watch all that process going on. When you find a young caterpillar, it's going to molt about four or five times. Molting is amazing! It crawls out of its skin. Then it turns around and eats the skin. If it's a monarch caterpillar, it looks pretty much the same after each time it molts. But if it's a black swallowtail caterpillar, and I encourage people to raise a lot of them, every time it molts, it looks like a different caterpillar. You don't know what you're going to get. So when you have the clear salad container that you've used as a rearing container on your table. There's so much going on that you don't want to miss it. You feed it and something amazing happens when you feed a creature. You get attached to it. You really care about it. When it's time to let it go, you're not even sure you want to let it go. You know you have to, but you've nurtured it so you love it. And that translates directly into environmental stewardship. Why do you believe raising a caterpillar is a great way to get kids interested in environmental stewardship? Well, here's what happens. They've got the caterpillars, then they might want to raise another caterpillar. Well, this is fantastic. What other caterpillars can I raise? Well, let me find out. If I plant pearly everlasting, I can get American lady caterpillars. Now we want to raise red admirals. We need the host plant for red admirals, which are nettles. Wanting to raise caterpillars leads you into the garden and into planting. The other thing it does is we find out that there's an insect apocalypse. 
Oh my goodness, you mean dad? You had tons of butterflies around when you were a kid? They were on the windshield of your car? You had to clean the windshield and and the grate when you came home because it was so filled with insects and we don't have them anymore? And if we don't do something, we're going to lose them all and we're going to go with it? With that care of the caterpillar comes a care for the environment. That field where you collect your caterpillars is getting bulldozed and you really care about it. This happened to me. I had side-by-side houses. I was a personal fitness trainer and I trained the women in both these houses. I used both properties to collect my caterpillars. One of the women sold the property, 200 acres. It wasn't just the foxes that had no more home. It wasn't just the wild turkeys that had no more home. It wasn't just the deer. It was my caterpillars that I loved. The milkweed was gone and I watched the bulldozer. Now it's so ingrained in me to save every inch of habitat that we can and to recreate the habitat that we've destroyed. This is what happens when you start really loving something. This cannot happen when you are playing video games. You're getting the kids out and away from the video games. What's your secret to doing that? The secret is to give them a caterpillar. My summers are spent in ditches and meadows because I love the hunt. Who doesn't love a hunt? People, they want to go fishing. They want to go hunting. They want to find something. It's innate. I love to go on a treasure hunt for caterpillars. I don't care how hot it is, and I don't care how many things eat me. I've got all these caterpillars and I don't have time to raise them all. So I give them away. Craig, I'm just one person. I encourage everybody to do the same thing. And that's why I'm the Monarch Crusader, because I publish on my page ways for you to get everyone else involved. If you give a kid a caterpillar, so often that's life-changing and instructions. They want to stand on the highest rooftop and tell everybody else to do the same thing. I kid you not, they can't leave the house all day and go to school because what if their caterpillar makes its chrysalis? What happens? They take the rearing container to school. What'll happen to you, Craig, if I give you one? You won't want to miss it. You're going to take the caterpillar to work with you. Everybody's going to gather around. I'm not making this up because it's happened a thousand times. They take it to work and everybody wants to see it and you find out what people know. Not everybody knows that a butterfly comes out of a caterpillar. In raising this, are you looking at just one caterpillar per container, or can you have several caterpillars in a container? Generally, in a salad container, you can have up to 10 caterpillars of the same species. You keep putting their particular food in there. Whatever leaf you found it on, you put that leaf in for whatever the term is that 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 particular caterpillar lives. It could be, uh, you know, two weeks. If you do moths, it could be six weeks that you feed them. You clean them every day. You show your parents you're responsible by taking care of something. That's how it is. Are there any negative aspects or concerns when you're raising a caterpillar in captivity versus out in the wild? If you raise it properly and you don't raise too many, it's the best thing that we could do for the environment. The caterpillar is very happy in its container. There are no predators. For monarch butterflies, for example, only one in a hundred eggs is going to make it to be an adult. 
The rest are going to be eaten or disease. If I bring that caterpillar in and raise it, there's a 90% chance that it's going to make it. It hasn't been eaten and that I set it free. The only downside is, is if I want to raise a hundred or a thousand. Because we don't know the whole story of raising everything in captivity, some people think that the monarch raised in captivity may not be as strong as the monarch raised in the wild. That's possible, except what we do know is that monarchs raised in captivity do make it to Mexico because we have the tagged monarchs to prove it. What challenges do they go through from when they leave? And I guess you're probably in the most northern area that monarchs fly north. Do they fly much further than Toronto? I'm in southern Ontario. They fly to central Ontario. Okay. At least five hours north of me. Okay. The migration is really fun because monarchs from the north will come through Toronto down to Lake Ontario. And they gather on Lake Ontario. So watching the migration is really fun. And then they continue that on to Mexico. What are the challenges that they face during that migration period? A huge challenge is lack of food, that is lack of pollinator plants. This is why we encourage everyone in the middle and southern states to plant fall nectar plants, those being goldenrod, New England aster. To have a native plant garden, which is generally the best for insects, you need host plants, which is what the caterpillar eats, and nectar plants, which is what the butterfly eats. One would need to look up what nectar plants are native to wherever you live and plant them. But the asters and the goldenrods are pretty much all over the state. So they can face food shortages and they face drought. Drought has been a huge problem in Texas. They all wind up funneling through Texas. Conditions in Texas are critical and there's drought so they don't have enough food. They also have this nasty habit of flying over roads and highways at car level. Not quite sure why they do this. Maybe they like the heat from the road and they do use thermal drafts to glide. But thousands and thousands get hit by cars. There are storms that knock them out. And if they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, they could get sprayed with pesticides. It's not easy. Of course, when they land, there are always predators. There are spiders. They get caught in spiders' nests. The praying mantises eat them. Lots of hazards. The butterfly that leaves the northernmost migration is the same butterfly that arrives in Mexico. Is that true? The, the butterflies that are leaving Canada now are going to fly all the way to Mexico. But when they turn around and start coming back, there's several generations as they come back. Is that the way that works? Yes, it is. One generation goes down to Mexico. That's, that's what's going down now. And they roost there in a small area in Mexico in the mountains in pine trees called oyamel trees. They're there for four to five months. It's a fascinating spectacle with up to 10,000 monarchs on a single tree. And the people who go to visit them speak in whispers if they speak at all. It's a very spiritual place. Then at the end of February, beginning of March, when the sun is in the right place in the sky and the temperature warms up, that signals them to leave. They leave in huge masses, mating and beelining it to the southern states where they lay eggs on milkweed that has just emerged. 
So as soon as the milkweed comes up, the monarchs from Mexico come there, they lay their eggs, and they die. A month later, we've got new adult butterflies. Meanwhile, the milkweed in Texas is old and withered. Now they fly north in search of new, fresh milkweed to lay their eggs. They may get as far as the northern states or even southern Canada. They lay their eggs and die. So we've got two generations. The first generation's from Mexico. They go to Texas, lay their eggs and die. The second generation, northern United States, southern Canada, lay their eggs and die. Now we in in, uh, southern Canada, we may have one or two generations there. Going to be the fourth or fifth generation that is right now in August leaving for Mexico. And, and the miracle is, of course, that not one of the monarchs that's going to Mexico now has ever been there before. Each one goes alone. They don't gather like the geese, and one of the geese has been there before. They don't gather like the deer, and one of the deer has taken this migration before. Everyone is going to a place it's never been by itself. What we don't talk much about is that after Mexico, it goes to the southern states, and it's never been there either. How do we increase the chances of a monarch completing its mission? We make sure it has enough milkweed in the breeding range and enough nectar plants in the migrating range. That's the best thing we can do is plant the only host plant that monarchs have is milkweed and plant the native nectar plants so it can migrate. If we discontinue putting insecticides all over everything, then they have a much better chance of staying alive. I've heard that the monarch's been called the poster child for nature. What is the bigger picture beyond the monarch? It's really wonderful to have a poster child that's the world's most famous butterfly. Why do we care about one butterfly? Because you're right. It's part of the big picture. It not only shows us how we're doing with all the insects, but anything that we do to save monarchs saves the whole ecosystem. If we plant native plants for the monarchs to lay their eggs on or to nectar on, all the other insects are going to benefit. Do you know that there's more than 100 insects that live on milkweed? There's more than 100 insects that live on goldenrod. Let's not forget the native trees. Just one oak tree can support more than 500 kinds of caterpillars. Once we get into this whole save the butterflies, then what about the other butterflies? And well, what about the moths too? So we better plan. And that's what saves us. Uh, Would you explain the connection between food we eat and the insect world, which butterflies and moths would be included in? How is all that connected? Well, the food we eat needs to be pollinated. Butterflies don't do a lot of pollinating, contrary to popular belief. Their value is elsewhere. It's the bees that do most of the pollinating for the foods that we eat. Let me give you an example. Got in my garden some milkweed because I want the monarch butterflies to come and lay their eggs. But I can't just have milkweed. I better put in some nectar plants too, some beautiful, gorgeous Joe pieweed and early nectar plants so that the monarchs will come in to feed. And then they'll see, oh, there's milkweed here. I can lay my eggs. Now that we have nectar plants, all the bees come in. A lot more bees than butterflies. 
Well, now that I've got the bees in my garden, they are going to go to the other half of the garden to pollinate my tomatoes and my squash and my cucumbers. So it's all part of a big package that brings the pollinators to your yard, and then the ones who are really good at it will be near your vegetables. Let's say that I want to increase my insect population, which is kind of counterintuitive to the way a lot of us think. You've told us some plants there, but as a landscape designer, I'm designing this property. Maybe they totally sold out wanting all natives, or maybe they're just kind of, yeah, natives will be okay to include in what we would think more of a traditional landscape. Where do we start, or what is your thought process on creating this landscape design? You've got a property that you've been asked to landscape and you want to have a big lawn in it and some gardens with the most exotic plants that your neighbors don't have. They've hired you so they trust you and they want some advice. How about we put in a little pollinator garden? Just a little one, okay? And then you make sure you've got the right host and nectar plants for your area to prove how gorgeous it can be. You have obedient plant, tis up a range of gorgeous coreopsises that are cup plants that are huge and gorgeous. Then you put that in, you know, trust me, give me a break here. Put that in and they've got butterflies. They're all excited about this. Well, why don't we expand the garden a little bit? So you start small. I even know of landscapers who have snuck in some native plants without even telling their clients. What is the worst that could happen? Oh my goodness, you put this gorgeous plant in my garden. I don't think that's going to happen. But oh my goodness, look at this plant. I've got butterflies on it. Uh, Wouldn't that be exciting? That's how the landscaper can get into the native plant. The landscapers are going to find that people are getting receptive to the addition of native plants. There is a huge movement going on to bring back the butterflies. People are aware of this. They're seeking out landscapers who know how to do this, and it does not take a long time to know how to do this. So they may be asking the landscapers how to get started, and the landscapers can learn very quickly which plants to put in to give the most show. I know that some people are concerned about insects eating their plants. If you're concerned about an insect eating your plant and it's an ornamental plant, well, then maybe you shouldn't have that plant. Maybe you should have a plant that will recover when the insects eat it. For example, pearly everlasting. When the caterpillars lay their eggs on it, for a few weeks it looks horrible. There's nests all over it. Any gardener would kill everything on there, the nests, the caterpillars, everything. Do you know what happens after all the butterflies emerge and you have caterpillars and butterflies? It's a native plant. The pearly everlasting completely recovers, gives a big show of gorgeous white flowers. They're good as a cut flower and a dried flower. They only need to see evidence of this to realize that it can work. The notion that nothing should be eating anything in my garden That's disappearing too, because more and more people realize that caterpillars are actually bird food. Most people will agree they want birds. They put out feeders. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. They pay a lot of money for bird food. Right now, the goldfinches are eating my cup plant. I didn't pay for bird food there. The goldfinches are eating my echinacea. 
they are learning that they can get birds to their garden with bird food, but the birds will not build a nest unless they know they can feed their babies. Babies do not eat bird food, but they don't eat bird seed. They eat caterpillars. If they want birds, they've got to have caterpillars. Now they walk out to their oak tree and they see caterpillars on it. Oh my, there's caterpillars on it. Doug Ptolemy has a solution to that. He says, take 10 steps backwards. You take 10 steps backwards and you don't see the caterpillars anymore. Don't look so closely. I look very closely. When I see a chewed leaf, I get excited. I want to find out what chewed it. And I want to raise it and see what it becomes. The other thing is the fruit trees are a big problem. We got the fruit trees and we've got tent caterpillars in them. And they're making these big white nests. Henry, did you see we've got nests? Come and clear out the nests. Get the blowtorch. Get the rake. Do whatever you can. I don't like these nests. Oh, the pesticides. What if we didn't get rid of the nests? What would happen? The birds would come and eat some of the caterpillars they'd become moths. The tent caterpillars become little moths. Then all the birds feed them to their babies. And we have birds. Have you been in a place that doesn't have a lot of birds or butterflies, Craig? I have. Yes, it's not fun. I visit my mother in Florida every year. She lives near golf courses. There's hardly a mosquito. There's hardly a bug. And you know what that means? There are no birds. There are no butterflies. It's wonderful. People love it. You can have a barbecue and not get bothered by a bee. But the ecosystem's collapsing. We are part of the ecosystem. When the insects go, we go. But what's the solution then? Say at your mother's house, I would think they're probably doing mosquito control there because if you don't, the mosquitoes will eat you up. What is the solution? Where's the balance in being able to enjoy the outdoors, mosquito-free, if you can? Then creating environments for caterpillars and birds. Yeah, that's a good question, the balance. The mosquito control, if there are deadly diseases around, is one thing. Spraying golf courses is another. For our enjoyment, we have to have bug-free golf course. We have to measure the absolute minimum amount of pesticides that we need to use in order to keep people safe, not to keep them so that they can have their barbecue without a wasp. You need to have your barbecue with a wasp. They're part of life. We need to change the mindset. And there's a huge movement changing the mindset to use fewer chemicals. We have to take that into consideration that we're removing West Nile, but we're also going to use at least damaging pesticides, minimal amounts to keep safe so that the other side of it isn't. We have huge warnings. Don't let your dog out. Don't let your cat out. Don't let anybody out because we've just put all this pesticide on your lawn in the park. That's a balance. It's, we, it's tough decisions to make. What do you wish people would do differently when designing or building a garden? If we're lucky enough to own property, we need to be stewards of it and plant the native plant that creatures need to survive and not use pesticides which kill Creatures. That is what I would like people to consider. I'm not going to ask anybody to give up their grandmother's lilies or anyone to plant 100% native plants because there is a place for non-native plants. Hey, we got to enjoy that garden. And if we have to give up our favorite roses, well, you know what? It's just not going to happen. Keep your roses, 
keep your lilies, but one plant at a time, start with native and try to build that up to 75%. You're going to want to. Once you experiment with native plants, I'm not going to have to convince you anymore. You're going to love it and the neighbors are going to love it. Let me tell you a story. Last year, on a neighbor's lawn, between the sidewalk and the road, there was a strip of grass. He has a responsibility to take care of that strip of grass, even though it belongs to the city. So the city says it's ours, but you need to take care of it. Okay, so I said, can I plant a native plant garden there? He said, yes. So I personally dug up 12 beds and collected native plants all over the place. People gave them to me. I bought a few. I put them in 12 beds, one to three plants each. I go and take care of it. Inevitably, people stop. They are fascinated by every plant. What's this? What's that? Why did you plant this one? Oh, really? Monarchs are on there? Oh my, can you look at the bees? There's a million bees on this. And what is that that's on it? Oh, what is that? This is great that you've built this thing. They love it. People just need to be exposed to it. And yes, every plant is higher than 10 or 12 inches or two feet, whatever their regulation is. I have some low ones near the corner because I certainly don't want to make it dangerous with people turning their cars. That's how readily people are going to buy in to the native plants once they see them. So just start with a few and then you'll be convincing me to plant more native plants. What garden myths would you like to smash? One of them is that native plants bring rodents when actually rodents come to your house because of food that's been left out, not native plant gardens. And another one is that a native plant garden doesn't require any maintenance. That's a good one. Or water. If you want your native plant garden to look good, give it a little water. Just a fraction of the amount that you would give your lawn. The work of a native plant garden is still a lot less than your ornamental plant garden. Well, what would be some typical maintenance chores for a native plant garden? Well, I was kind of surprised with my native plant garden when the plants started falling over. I got to stake up my native plants. What, 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 I got to stake up my goldenrod. I've got to stake up my coreopsis. This isn't right, but I do stake it up. So I have two choices. Why doesn't it need staking in the wild? Because it's dense. They're all together and they all support each other. I could do that, but I personally prefer a more manicured-looking garden. I want a plant here and a little bit of space around it. Another plant and a little bit of space around it. Well, that space allows them to fall over, so I stake it up. That's one of the chores. Weeding is another one. If it's really dense, you won't have to weed. I like it to look taken care of, and that keeps the neighbors happy, too. When you're in HOA, you want to keep the neighbors happy. First of all, make sure you're friends with all of them, that they understand what you're doing so that they don't report you, and make it look like you're taking care of it. I personally like that. You can put little fences around it, or put little rocks, or put little signs, and it looks fantastic. What's your earliest garden memory? Nine years ago. I grew up, I didn't do any gardening. My first house, I didn't do any. I had young children. Gardening was not important. In 2012, I wrote a book about monarch butterflies. I started presenting to people about monarch butterflies. What are they going to ask me first? What do I need to plant? Hmm, I better start learning how to plant things. 
Then they're asking me about other butterflies, so I better develop some expertise in other butterflies. So I did. And I better develop some expertise about butterfly gardening, so I better plant one. So I looked up a few books and I learned a few things. Oh, and the best thing, I've got to have a garden and I've got to walk the walk. Take out my whole back grass, which was really fun because I got my teenage boys to dig it out. I got a book and I made a whole list of what I need to plant. I looked at height, how high is it going to be, so what do I need to plant in the middle, how much water does it need, so which on the hill should I put it on the high end or the low end, and I knew I needed continuous bloom. So I'm looking at the seasons. Does it bloom in the spring or the summer or the fall? And I got everything on this chart, and I go to my native plant nursery with my list of native plants that I'm going to put in my garden. They had about one quarter of the plants that I wanted. I got the 25% of my plants, and then I walked around and I said, okay, I'll take this one, this one, and this one, and that one. Some of them lived and some of them didn't. And that was nine years ago when I started my native plant garden, laid them all out and planted them. But the next year, I had a garden. It didn't take all that long. I had a garden. And if there was a plant that didn't make it, like the cardinal flower, because I put it in a spot that wasn't moist enough, well, that was an opportunity to put something else in. This is every gardener's huge problem is where am I going to put the next plant? So if I make a mistake and the plant dies, woohoo! I can put in something else. What was it about monarchs that got you excited enough to write a book? It was other people who encouraged me to write the book. I never had any aspirations to write a book. Uh, when I was in, in law school, I met a guy. We started going out, and his idea of a fun date was to ride to a conservation area, have a picnic, and look for caterpillars. We're going to look for caterpillars. Um, so I married him. And then I spent 20 years raising caterpillars with him and with our children. We go to the cottage, we rent a cottage, and now we got to go out. We're going on a caterpillar hunt. There's a lot of hours in a day when you've got young kids. So we're going on a caterpillar hunt, and this is fun. I found one. I found a bigger one. I found two. And we are having the bestest time with looking for caterpillars. Okay, so we bring them home, put them in a container. What do we do the next day? We go out. Well, we got to get some milkweed to feed them. So now we go out and we're busy gathering. I'm telling you, it kept us busy. We got to go get some milkweed. And we have the fun again because we find more caterpillars. Well, let's take a picture of the kids and the caterpillars. Fantastic. I'm 69 years old. And at that time, to take a picture, it cost 50 cents for every picture that you developed. And it was $7 and change to develop the roll of 12 or 20 pictures. That was a lot of money. When you took a picture, you better really want to take a picture. We took a few pictures of the kids, and we took a few pictures of the butterflies. When the butterfly emerges, it can't fly for about two hours. You can get great pictures of the kids with the caterpillars because it can't fly yet. And then when its wings are dry enough, it flies off. Okay, so and I still have those pictures. What happened was digital photography. Oh, you can take lots of pictures. You don't develop them anymore. You, you can take, really? It doesn't cost per picture? No, no, you never even need to make a picture. Great. Well, let's take 10 pictures then. 
Let's take 50. Let's take 100 pictures of this caterpillar. You don't need to take a course, zoom in, zoom out, right, left. And if you take enough pictures, you've got a gorgeous picture. We print a few pictures. Then my kids grow up and tell me, Mom, do you know what? We don't print pictures anymore. Really? Well, how do you look at them then? You look at them on the computer. Okay, Craig, why don't you come over to my house next week and I'm going to show you pictures of my butterflies on the computer. I'm going to be really popular, okay? So now we got the pictures on the computer. We don't have albums anymore and nobody ever sees your pictures until I was at a client's house and I saw on his coffee table a book, Sydney's 90th birthday party. How can there be a book about you with all your grandchildren in it and pictures of you when you're a kid? How did you get a book like this? And he said, my granddaughter made it on the computer. And that's how I discovered photo books. So now all my pictures are going into photo books. Now I can show you that without bothering you too much. Literally hundreds of people said, Carol, you need to make a book. These pictures are fantastic. And that's the beginning of how the book got started. What's in the book? What are you teaching or what are you accomplishing with the book? What my friends didn't know was that my pictures were not good enough for a coffee table book. I had a cheap camera, a point and shoot, and they are all telling me to make a book. Eventually, I say, you know what? If so many people are telling me to make a book and it's not a coffee table book, I better figure out how to get these pictures out there somehow. I also have a master's degree in marketing. I should be able to figure this out. So I went to the library and I looked at what books are there for kids. There had to be 20, 25 monarch books for kids. Only one or two of them had any photographs in them. They were all illustrated. Now my photographs were looking really good compared to what was out there. Now I can do a kid's book. What am I going to say in this kid's book? Well, I'll tell them how to raise them because I know how to raise them. And I've got the pictures. I draft up a book. I take it to only three publishers. And one of them says, yes. What happens after that is the publisher said, you know what? You should really have something about butterfly gardening in there. Went home and did a homework assignment and wrote a chapter on butterfly gardening. Then the publisher said, well, you really should talk about the migration a little bit more. And every week I went to the publisher and didn't realize it, but he was extracting a comprehensive book from me where talking about raising them is only a small part of it. Get the whole life cycle in just 48 pages. The pictures are beautiful. Now kids and adults have what I didn't have. I had the caterpillar and I couldn't answer anybody's question. You want to know how many generations it is? I didn't know. You want to know how far it is to Mexico? I didn't know. You want to know how long it sits in its chrysalis? I didn't know. All these things I put into my book, and now if you're raising them, you may as well become an expert in 48 pages. Now you can teach the school, the library, the scouts. That's the information that's in the book. And of course, at the end, there are questions to discuss and all the references you need to learn more. You've been fairly successful with that too, haven't you? Well, I didn't even know it was a good book when I published it, but now 60,000 copies later, I do. And I had the gift of reprinting. Every time he reprints the book, the publisher, and that's six times, I've been allowed to improve it. Now, it's a really good book. Even the first book was good because 
I had it checked with two best monarch scientists, Dr. Chip Taylor and Lincoln Brower. I had them look at it to check it for accuracy. And that's what made it different than all the others. It was only at the last minute they came in. I had another person who was going to check it. If they hadn't checked it, it would have been an embarrassment. They did check it. They corrected the mistakes because the books are littered with mistakes. And now it's accurate, gorgeous, funny, interesting. And that's why it has more than a thousand five-star reviews on Amazon. Oh, that's great. Well, I don't know that we've actually said the title of your book. Yeah, it's How to Raise How to Raise Monarch Butterflies, a step-by-step guide for kids. Everybody tells me that that's not the best title because it's a step-by-step guide for everybody, adults too, and they find it interesting. <laughs> Have you written any other books? Yes, I've written a book called Five Butterflies. It goes through the life cycle of four common butterflies and a Cecropia moth. Because once you're finished with the butterflies, you've got to get into moths because they can be 10 times more exciting than butterflies. This is a ruse for getting kids off their computer and into nature. It's disguised as five butterflies, but it's really to get kids into nature. The point is, get out of the house and look for these caterpillars. Then look up, look down, because I don't care what you fall in love with. As long as it's living outside, it's fun and interesting. And there's pictures in this book of stunning photographs of fungus, fish, frogs. Did you take them? I didn't take all of them. What I did for the pictures that I was missing is I called upon my whole network to contribute to the book. And that's why I have the best pictures available because other people have donated their photographs. Tell us a funny garden story or monarch story. Once you get out into the wild to hunt for something, great things are going to happen. I'm out with my daughter. We're having this fantastic time. Most of the time, the monarch lays the egg on the underside of the leaf. Not always. In my book, I show you five other places It could lay its eggs, but usually it's on the underside. So we're turning over hundreds and hundreds of milkweed leaves looking for a monarch egg or caterpillar when my daughter screams. Oh, my. She just screams. She's terrified. She's screaming. I go over. Now I have to do an investigation. I very, very carefully look under this leaf, and there is a monster under it, a monster, a prehistoric monster. It's only a few inches big, but boy, is it ugly, and it's got claws, but it's not moving. Huh, it's got a hole in its back. That means that I'm looking at an exoskeleton. There was an insect in there, and it crawled out through the back of this exoskeleton. So that was really fun. There was actually no bug there at all. After that, I learned that it was a cicada. What a fascinating insect that cicada is. After that, I sought out cicadas, and now I've been lucky enough to catch a few of them when they're crawling out through that back. And I've even held one in my hand as it pumped up its wings. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Well, my garden mistake is I don't like to read a lot of instructions. That's a barrier for me. I'm not going to do it if I have to learn everything first. I put the plant in, kind of hope for the best. 
I killed my first butterfly weed. It just died. It's, it's an orange, gorgeous kind of milkweed and low growing. Everybody should have it. So I bought another one and I planted that and I killed that too. I killed it because it was near some annuals. Annuals are good too. Annuals need watering. And the butterfly weed got watered. Don't water butterfly weed. It likes to be dry. Now I've got gorgeous butterfly weed and I don't put it near my annuals and it's growing. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I was really lucky this year. I went to a conference the first time I've ever been to a garden communicators conference. We got tours of so many gardens and because I was never into other kind of gardening, I really didn't know what was going on. What was really fun was to see apples growing on wires such that you could pick them at any height. So that was pretty fascinating to learn. I learned about different kinds of eggplants and how you raise 10,000 hydrangeas at the same time and ship them all over the country. These were things that I learned about gardening that I didn't know before. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have 20 or 30 species of native plants. I love them all. They're in all different colors. They grow at all different times. I have the standard echinacea. I have swamp milkweed, which is the milkweed that I recommend most often. I have common milkweed, prairie milkweed, world milkweed, and butterfly weed, as well as many different kinds of goldenrod. Tall sunflower-like plants like Coreopsis, turtle head, and many different kinds of host plants. Just love it. What's your favorite thing to do in the garden? Is to look for caterpillars. Yeah, and I observed you on one of the gardens that we visited, and you're over at the milkweed. You were looking for eggs. <laughs> oh, it was really important. If I see a native plant, it draws me like a magnet. I can't look at anything else until I've inspected it. Yeah. At the Minnesota Arboretum, I looked at all the milkweed and found a caterpillar, and I was happy. I, unhappy that I couldn't take it with me. I wouldn't take it with me from a public garden anyway. I left it for everybody else to see. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? I have finally learned to heed the advice of gardeners that are older and wiser than me. We've got this beautiful running bellflower. It's not the name of it. It's stalks of purple bells, and it's very pretty. It's a non-native invasive, and a few people told me to get rid of it completely. But hey, what's a few of them going to hurt? They go so nicely with the yellow. I'm going to leave just a few of them in. And they said, you'll never get rid of it. So they're right. I never will get rid of it. Doesn't matter how much you dig it up. If you leave a millimeter of it, it will grow again. It's in all our ravines. It's everywhere. Everybody's got it in the garden. And what do you say to them? It's invasive. You've got to get rid of it. But Carol, it's gorgeous, okay? It's gorgeous, but it's going to kill everything else you have, and you're not going to be able to get rid of it. So I should have learned this lesson when they told it to me about Canadian goldenrod. I'm putting in a native plant garden. I've got to put in some Canadian goldenrod. Well, when it's a native plant, you don't say it's invasive. You say it's aggressive. What does aggressive mean? Okay, it's getting too big. I'll cut it back. 
It's a lot more than that. It sends out its runners and kills the other plants. So I've learned that when a gardener is older and wiser and cautions you about aggressive or invasive plants, you should listen to them. What are your future plans for your garden? I don't have future plans. The plans come to me. The universe is set up that what I should be doing comes to me. And how does it come to me? Well, I do get, tend to get out of the house. So I may go to an event and someone is trying to get rid of a certain number of native plants and they beg me to take it, okay? Then, like all other gardeners, I've got to find a place for it. This year, somebody came to my garden tour and insisted on giving away plants, which is great, fantastic. You got plants to give away? Well, they didn't all go. And now she's leaving me with these two anise hyssops. I don't have a place for them. I really don't. So I have to dig up a different plant, which really actually did need digging up. There's a story behind that. Anyway, I put it in and it is doing fantastic. Whatever I'm supposed to have in my garden next year will definitely come to me and I will figure out what to do with it. So there's always something new in the garden. Isn't that fun? Yes. What plant are you in love with this week? Milkweed. I'm in love with it every week. The reason I'm in love with it this week is because I was lucky enough to have gifted to me some young monarch caterpillars because I don't have any more in my yard. In another city, I got these little caterpillars. And why do I want them now? It's because I have another tagging event. What excites the kids at a tagging event is caterpillars. So now I've got the milkweed from my yard and I'm bringing it in and I'm feeding the last of my caterpillars this season. But the pods now are gorgeous too. Winter interest, the pods are starting to explode and they are gorgeous. You know what? There's just so much to love about a milkweed. <laughs> How would you like to wrap up our conversation today? People like me, we have some free time. Kids have grown up and there's a lot of causes that we can choose. I'm choosing two of them. One is that kids aren't living the way we did when we grew up playing outside. They're trapped on their devices. It's a problem with their mental health and their physical health. We got another problem is that our ecosystems are collapsing and we're losing our birds and butterflies. I've got a simple solution to both of these problems. Raise a caterpillar. The kids are out of the house, in nature, calm, healthy, and now they want to save the world. Carol, tell us how people may connect with you. I'd love to hear from you by email. That's monarchcrusader at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on Facebook, the Monarch Butterfly Crusader. I'm also on LinkedIn. This has been episode 128, The Monarch Crusader, with Carol Pasternak. Thank you, Carol. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.